morning. So I was born and raised in South Africa. Who's seen the TV show Snake City? Who's seen the TV show? It's on Animal Planet called Snake City. No one? Okay. Well, it's there, okay? It's there. I'm not making this up. Um, well, it's about the show where these two weirdos go hunting snakes throughout Durban, South Africa. That's the city where I grew up. And that's my wife back there. <laughs> and uh, I was there for 35 years in South Africa before we came here. Then we were in North Carolina for about 17 years. We've been here for almost six years. I had seen more snakes in Florida than in the previous 40 years. I'm serious, even in Snake City. So, so we are gonna do something here this morning and I need you to play with me, okay? Play with me. Um, there has been an infestation of snakes in this building. And they are crawling all under these chairs. And you need to stomp them, come on, stomp them now. Stomp them, go on, play with me, play with me. You're not allowed to sit down until you've stomped on at least three snakes, okay? All right, then you can sit down. You guys were not playing nicely. I think I'm gonna take my toys and go home. What's the point? I'll get to that later. We are in the midst of a four-part series. This is part number three, uh, dealing with Acts chapter seven, uh, looking at his story when Stephen was arrested for the simple crime of talking about Jesus. He did not try and worm his way out of it. He didn't try and reason with his accusers. He just told them God's story. He told them the story that they knew that they had lived by or had tried to. And Stephen just recounts that story. And we've been looking at various aspects of that story now for the past two weeks, and we will look at another aspect of it this morning. But I'm going to take us back to Genesis chapter 2, the covenant with Adam. Chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, we know the story, right? They ate of it. So now God is, is coming to visit with Adam and Eve shortly after their sin. And we move to Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Did God know that already? Sure he did. And so what we have next is the first blame game in the history of man. In fact, the blame game is the oldest game in human history. Adam said, the woman, <laughs> the woman, you gave me. I did not choose her. <laughs> her mother-in-law did not twist my arm to take her. 
I mean her mother. (laughs) The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So Adam is blaming not only Eve, he's also blaming who? He's blaming God. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now verse 15, this is a key text for this morning. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Message Bible puts it this way. I believe it's going to be up on your screen. I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll wound your head. You'll wound his heel. But I really like the way that the New International Version interprets or translates this verse. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I will put enmity between you and the woman. So what God is saying now, for the rest of humankind history, there is going to be this tension, this battle, this war raging between the devil and his cronies and Adam and Eve and their offspring, you and I. He, this is the first prophecy about Jesus, the offspring of the woman, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The worst the devil can do to us is strike our heel. The worst the devil can do to us is mess with us. He has no ultimate jurisdiction over our lives. And if we are in Christ Jesus, and if we believe that ultimately Christ is going to crush the head of the serpent, and if we are in Christ Jesus, what does that make us? Serpent crushers. Right? Do we have to live in bondage? Do we have to live in sin? Do we have to live with the the past that God has cleansed and forgiven and forgotten? Drag it around with us when we are serpent crushers. Adam and Eve's sin brought death into the world. And in a sense, we were scheduled to pay for it. But the covenant that God made with Moses brought commandments and sacrifices. And in a sense, it gave us a stay of execution. Because there was hope. There was a redeemer that was promised. Something better that would come along. Moses instituted 613 written laws. They had thousands of oral laws that they tried to keep. And this was this heavy weight dragging around their necks that they pulled through life and through history. 
about 600 years before Christ, Jeremiah gave this prophecy. Verse, chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The religious leaders of the first century would have been aware of this passage. They knew a new covenant was coming. They knew that God had promised the Messiah. They knew of messianic passages like Isaiah 53 that talks about Christ being led like his lamb to the slaughter, taking on the sins of the world that by his stripes we are healed. They knew all of this. When they were presented with Jesus, even after his death and resurrection, when they could have gone back and, and, and studied and seen the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' life, about 70 direct prophecies, about 300 indirect prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Presented with all of that evidence, they still refused to accept it. And they persecuted those who did. So about three to five years into the life of the New Testament church, the religious leaders have dragged this man, Stephen, before them. Trumped up charges about blasphemy. So let's pick up the story again in Acts chapter 6. We're going back to Acts chapter 6, just to recap. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him, talking about Stephen, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Change? <laughs> Do we like that word? Change, really? To which Stephen might say, yes. Yes, you are right. Change is coming. In fact, change has come. Change is happening right here in our midst, right around us. And this is good. The oldest passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Don't you want to change? Don't you want to take that that heavy Old Testament load of rituals and laws and oral traditions that just bind you? Don't you want to be free of that? Something that's lighter and freeing? The religious leaders accusing Stephen want none of it. And we could have predicted that. And this tension between the old and the new is going to creep into the New Testament church. And, and, and we're going to see it playing over and over again as we go through the book of Acts. 
This tension between the old and the new, the tension between outward physical religious observances and inner spirituality, tensions between law and grace, tensions between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. But just a brief peek at the struggle, I want to fast forward about 17 years, and it's important for our study this morning. I want to fast forward about 17 years to 8050, roughly 8050. The church has been spreading and growing. Paul, the, the Pharisee, the religious fanatic, got saved. And he's moved, he's changed from, from persecutor of the church to church planter, to the, to, to the preacher of the gospel. And Paul is going throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Greece, Italy, spreading the gospel, preaching, establishing churches, visiting churches. And he and the other apostles are running into problems. In fact, there's one big problem. And this is the tension between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. Because the Jewish Christians were enforcing Old Testament laws on the non-Jewish Christians. So if a, if a person in Athens or Corinth gets saved, they're raised in a Greek mythological religious atmosphere, pagan culture, they have no affinity to Judaism. They probably have very little knowledge of it. And they come to faith in Christ. This little sect of Jewish Christians were requiring them to take on Old Testament laws and rituals. Even to become circumcised. Take on diet. Observe the festivals. And so the church calls a council. And at this council in Jerusalem, roughly around 8050, they talk and they deliberate about this. And what are we going to do about this? Are we going to require non-Jewish Christians to observe all of these Old Testament regulations? Peter stands up in the meeting, Acts 15, verse 10. Now this is so important for this morning. Peter says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Talking about the Gentiles. Just as they will. I think some of this tension is right here in this room. No, you're not... <laughs> probably carrying around all 613 Old Testament laws, but, but there's at times this, this tension within us between what we used to or what we've had, where we've been, and the new that God wants to do in our lives. The tension between those things of the past that we haven't fully surrendered, that we're holding on to, and the liberating freedom that God wants to do in do in us and through us. And there's this tension, this, this issue that we struggle with. It binds us, doesn't free us. For years we've heard about freedom in Christ, about his liberating work of the Holy Spirit. But for some reason, at times we put a wall around our heart and we do the outward observances and we'll come to church and we'll do our thing but yet our heart isn't fully free. 
in the Lord. Those who are accusing Stephen of blasphemy, they dogmatically refusing to even consider the possibility that Jesus can do something new and wonderful and revolutionizing in their lives. They're physically circumcised, but they're spiritually bound. The reality is, folks, we can circumcise every part of our bodies. We can circumcise every part of our lives and we can come to church and stay in church and get involved in all kinds of religious activities, but unless we allow Christ to circumcise our hearts, we're never going to experience the full liberating joy of knowing Jesus. So we're back to Stephen's story. Back to his story, Acts chapter 7. Coming to the end of Stephen's speech, he stops the history lesson (laughs) Maybe he gets a little vocal, a bit louder, a bit more animated. He says to his accusers, verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which other prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This leads us to our discussion this morning, back to covenants. If we take the phrase from chapter 6, where Stephen's accusers are saying, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us, If we add that, it's kind of like two plus two, if we add that to Stephen's comment, the coming of the righteous one, we combine those two sentences, what do we have? We have the new covenant. We have a new work. We have a work of grace. Not a work of law or rituals, but a work of grace. And if you are part of the new covenant, what does that make you? That makes you a new creation. Amen? Listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The word new appears about 70 times in the New Testament. If you want an encouraging Bible study, just look it up and just read those verses. Every time it says new, new, new. Oh, it's so encouraging. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is God's story. This is his story. Where we are in history, in the first century, his story now is a new thing that God is doing, a new beginning. I'm not knocking the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament, and you've heard me speak from the Old Testament But the reason why we call it the Old Testament is because it is the Old Testament. Jesus did not come to revive, revise, or reform the Old Testament system. Jesus came not to perpetuate the sacrificial system or give it a little modern twist. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament, to fulfill the laws and the sacrifices. Jesus came to write his laws in our hearts 
Jesus came to do a new thing. New in you, new for you. So the obvious question this morning, have you allowed God to do that new thing in you? And if you have, has it gotten old? <laughs> kind of mundane, kind of routine. You've lost the joy of the heart and it's just an outward, external, physical observance and, and you're just yearning for God to do something new again inside of you. So for the rest of our time here this morning, I'm just literally going to list about 11 new things that God wants to do, do for us or what God has done for us. And before we do that, I'm going to tell you about Mother Teresa. Short little Indian lady devoted her life to help the poor, the impoverished, the outcasts in India. In India, there is a four-level caste system. It's actually been outlawed, but it's still practiced. Right at the top, you get the religious leaders, the Brahmin, then you get the national leaders, the military leaders. The next one down is your workers, your artisans, um, your factory workers, and then the last level, you get your servants. Those are the four levels. But there's actually another level that isn't even worthy according to some Indian traditions, to be listed on the caste, and that's your untouchables. In some communities in India, they are called Dalits, the untouchables. And those are your beggars, your impoverished, your homeless. Some parents of untouchables would actually break their children's legs because a crippled Dalit gets more money begging. And Mother Teresa went into the cities into the streets of Calcutta and picked up these kids, took them to her orphanage and cared for them and loved them. Hindu leaders actually went to her and said, please don't, you're messing with the caste system. No kidding. And Mother Teresa refused to listen to them. And I love that because the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't leave us crippled in the gutter. Amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ lifts us up and carries us on his wings and says to us, you are my treasured possession. And do you believe that? Do you believe that? Are you living that? So we're going to list about 11 new things. The first one, obviously, is the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15, in fact most of the scripture supporting these new things comes from Hebrews. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus' death and resurrection fulfilled the Old Testament, ushered in the new covenant. Next one, new access to God. <laughs> uh, Joanne, I think her name's Joanne's um, testimony here this morning. Reference this verse. We had not compared notes. <laughs> and as I was standing down there listening to her testifying, I said, thank you, Lord. She is, she is preaching the sermon this morning. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
this would have been a revolutionizing thought in the first century. For 1,500 years, Hebrews have brought their sacrifices, sometimes in fear and trembling before God. And Jesus is saying, you can come boldly before the throne. You don't have to fear. You can come to God with anything, anywhere, anytime, and bring your petitions to the Lord. We have new access to God. No longer was God confined to buildings, at least in their minds. Henry Blackaby makes an interesting statement in this regard. He says, equal access to God does not mean equal blessing from God. You and I have equal access to God. Next one, new sacrifice, Hebrews 10 verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, I might insert the word a single new sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Here again is another revolutionizing thought in the first century. For 1,500 years they brought sacrifices. Sacrifices, lamb, goats, doves, grain. And very often those sacrifices were part of an a abusive system where, where those selling the animals would, would upcharge, would charge a lot, would con the peasants, would make them pay exorbitant fees or they would come and they would look at their animal and it wasn't perfect enough and, and, and the reason why they would reject it sometimes is because they had somebody in the temple courts that would sell supposedly perfect doves to offer sacrifices and it was abused. And now Jesus comes along, the apostle comes along and says, guys, no more sacrifices. In fact, all you have to do <laughs> Paul says in Romans 12 is to present yourself as a living sacrifice. What a thought. Jesus was the new sacrifice once and for all for the sins of the world. Next one, a new high priest. Hebrews 4.13, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So many of the Old Testament priests were corrupt. I know that's a generalization. Eli's sons are a perfect example, but they weren't the only ones. Eli's sons took the best meat of the sacrifices for themselves. They weren't allowed to do that. They were abusing the woman, working in the temple. Priests in the Middle Ages were no different. Peasants were held captive by what the priests said. Hardly ever could they read a Bible or understand what was going on in church as it was in Latin. And they would just come to church and they would just believe that, that the priest had spoken for them and prayed for them and interceded for them. The Reformation came along in the 1500s and says, no more. No more. You don't have to go through priests. You don't have to go through rituals and sacrifices you can go to God. Why? Because Jesus is the new high priest. He's the new high priest. Next one, a new heart. Hebrews 10 verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil conscience and our bodies washed 
with pure water? Are you yearning for the Lord to give you a new heart? Just to do something new in you. Take away the old crud that's built up. I like the way that Ezekiel puts this, verse, chapter 36, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The heart is the seat of our emotions, our desires, our deliberations, our conscience. Sometimes we can get hard-hearted, <laughs> stubborn, Stiff-necked, Jesus has come to give us a new heart. Next one, new circumcision. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Christ working us as a form of heart circumcision. It's internal. It manifests itself externally. There's a change externally. The way we speak, the way we conduct ourselves, places that we go, conversations we have. There's an external change, but it comes from within. Christ does a new thing and he circumcises our hearts, cuts off the sin, sets us free from the past. Next, we have a new universal family. Galatians 3, 28, there is now neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here again is another revolutionizing thought. In fact, this, this was a major culture shift in thought. Women were second-class citizens at best in most of these ancient cultures. Testimonies were not, were not valid in court if it was just them alone. And Christ comes and elevates the status of woman. In fact, women ought to be Christians, <laughs> all of them, because of what Christ has done for you, elevated your status. In fact, it was to a woman that Christ announced for the first time that he was the Messiah. It was to a woman that Christ appeared for the first time after his resurrection. And what does he tell us men? <laughs> this is a big one, guys. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wow, that's a pretty high standard, right? But we're all one. There's no longer Jew or Greek or Gentile or slave or free in the family of God. We, we, we are one. Next, Christ comes to give us a new commandment. Out of thousands of oral laws, came from 613 written laws. We could sum up Moses' moral law with the Ten Commandments. Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment? He gave us two in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus actually narrows that down even more to one New ethic, one new commandment. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. 
How many problems would be solved at home if you loved each other as Christ has loved you? How many problems or tensions would get solved at work if you loved that difficult coworker as Jesus has loved you? Jesus came to bring us a new power, God in us. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Do you believe that? That thing that's hounding you, that thing that's nipping at your heel, that thing that the devil uses, do you believe that in Christ you can crush it, that he can crush it through you? Do you believe that, that in Christ I can do all things? That in Christ, he can set me free. We have a new power. Two more. We have a new self. Colossians 3, verse 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Do you like the you you are? You know the Bible tells us that we need to love ourselves. Christ wants to give you a new self, a new self-image. Renew yourself inside of you. And then the last one, Christ wants you to be a serpent crusher. I know that sounds rather graphic. A serpent crusher. 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you would crush sin in your life. I write this to you so that you will not sin. Is that possible? Do you know how many times we disagree with that verse? And we live in this environment, and it irks me every time I hear it, that we sin in word, thought, and deed every day, and there's nothing we can do about it. I don't believe that for a minute. I don't see that in Scripture anyway. But for some reason, that little phrase has kind of worked its way into our Christian thinking and into our churches. We sin in word, thought, and deed every day. But God is telling us in this verse, I write this to you so that you will not sin. How can we? We are frail jars of clay. How can we not sin? Do you believe that Christ is in you? Not your head. <laughs> do you believe that he is able to do more than what you can ever ask or imagine? Do you believe that in him you can do all things? Do you believe that you can be a serpent crusher this morning? Then how can you believe that you sin in word, thought, and deed every day and there's nothing you can do about it? I think that's a contradiction. But let's read on in this verse. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. If we sin, Christ is there to intercede for us. He's there to forgive. He's there to lift us up. 
He's there to be that serpent crusher in us, to get victory over that besetting sin, to get victory in Christ, to find freedom, and freedom at last. Besides observing snakes in Florida, <laughs> I've also observed a lot of vines, a lot of vines in the state. They creep up trees, even big trees. And we know that if we don't control the vines that grow around big trees, some of them will actually choke out a big tree. But all we have to do is to get a little um, machete and just chop it at the base. Chop that vine off. Even if it's huge, growing up a huge big oak tree, just chop it at the base. It's not suddenly going to fall off, but it's going to stop the energy, the power, the juice. And if we watch that oak tree or that big tree, whatever it is, slowly that vine will die. And it might even lose its grip and fall off the tree. Christ wants to come and chop those things at their base, the root inside that's causing your spiritual life to get choked out, to cause, that's causing the joy to get taken away. He wants to chop it at the base. And it might not fall away overnight, but if you allow him to chop it, if you, if, if, if you do what you need to do to stop certain things, stay away from certain things, stop going down certain internet pathways, and focus on him, that choking vine is going to fall away. And you're going to enjoy the full measure of Christ's love in your heart. That's what we want, right? But the devil's convincing us that we cannot. We cannot. And he's a liar. Let's pray together. Father, your word is so powerful and so faithful. And we thank you for it. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Oh Lord, the devil wants to come and lie and steal and kill and destroy. He's the accuser. And he wants to tell us that we cannot find freedom in Christ, that we cannot have full joy, that we've been through this for years and years and we haven't been set free yet and, and our tendency is just to give up. Lord, forgive us for giving up. Forgive us for those times when we fail to recognize that you have brought in to our lives a new thing, a new covenant, a new heart, a new priest, a new sacrifice, and you want to do a new thing in our hearts. Oh Lord, do that this morning. Some of us this morning have walked with you for many years, and maybe some here this morning, Lord, we've just grown cold. We want a fresh, a fresh work from you. And maybe there's some here this morning, Lord, who have never given their hearts to you. And they need a fresh new heart. They want a new heart. Challenge them, Lord, this morning to open up to you. Speak to the Lord this morning in this quiet.
is tugging at you like I'm sure he is. Respond to him this morning. We have prayer partners up front on your left. You can come and they will pray with you or come pray alone. But respond to the Lord this morning. As the worship team leads us, let's stand together and worship. You respond to the Lord as he leads you.
10 experiences is to be under it rather than observe it from a distance. What is it that you need to do to just take a step at the fount of his blessing? Father, we welcome the fount of your blessing to pour over us, to refresh us, to renew us. We pray a fresh blessing on each individual here this morning and each family. Go with us in the joy of Jesus.